Good morning and welcome back to Regionally Speaking with your host, Dee Dodson. February marks Black History Month, an annual celebration of achievement by African Americans as well as a time for recognizing their key role in American history. The annual month-long event was birthed out of Negro History Week, an ideal by historian Carter G. Woodson, with the first sponsored event happening in 1926, just six decades after slavery was abolished with the passage of the 13th Amendment. So we wanted to spend some time today discussing Indiana's rich history and role in the Underground Railroad. Joining us now is Jeannie Reagan-Dinius, currently the Director of Historic Preservation with the Crown Hill Heritage Foundation in Indianapolis. Prior to her role with the Crown Hill Heritage Foundation, Jeannie was the Director of Special Initiatives with the Indiana Department of Natural Resources Division of Historic Preservation. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. So pleased to be with you. Thank you. Absolutely. So, Jeannie, when we began to do our research for a conversation on the history of the Underground Railroad in Indiana, I honestly could not find anyone more qualified to speak on the matter than you. So first, tell us about your involvement with the Department of Natural Resources, because you typically don't think of a historian on staff for that government agency. And Well, you're very kind um, to say that about me. There are lots of people in Indiana doing research. I gleefully um, work with them all. And kind of, we all stand on each other's shoulders, but thank you for the kind words. So DNR um, has relationships with the National Park Service. And one of the divisions in DNR deals with the preservation of the built environment. And they do a lot of work with the national parks um, in their uh, preservation of buildings. And so um, back in the 1990s, um, Congress mandated that the, um, that the Park Service create a park, a national, like a Gettysburg for the Underground Railroad, but recognizing that the history was still young in research and there was still so much to do each state, they, they challenged each state to do some of their own research. And I am proud to say Indiana stepped up as a state government and said, yep, we need to do this. But the state realized that, you know, we couldn't do all the research. So um, we reached out uh, to other, you know, local historians, county historians, individuals doing things on their churches, things like that, and brought together a group that's become um, its own organization called Indiana Freedom Trails. And between all of us, we're doing research on the Underground Railroad to get a more um, accurate history of Indiana and hopefully preserve some of not just the stories, but some of the sites associated with that history. Jeannie, before we dig into Indiana's history regarding slavery and the Underground Railroad, I would like to start with how we got here. And in this case, how we got here over the course of 300 years of slavery in the country. Now, Jeannie, if you will, paint a picture of the Atlantic slave trade voyage to the American shores. So for most individuals who were brought over to what would be considered the New World, the North American continent, and to remember, they were brought to every part of the North American continent. This isn't just a southern United States um, project. This is something that is going on from Canada down to South America and everywhere in between. An individual would be in usually the western part of Africa. You know, not necessarily. There's always, every time I'll say, well, you know, this is where they're from, people are like, what about this person? So, yes, there are individuals who come from other parts um, of Africa, but the vast majority, it is the Western part of Africa. They are, vast majority are kidnapped. Some are prisoners of war, some are in there from other reasons, but the vast majority are kidnapped, put on ships, 
and sent across um, the ocean. And I will tell you that so many people died on that voyage that sharks used to follow the slave ships. Because when someone died, you would throw them off to get rid of the the odor, the issues, all that kind of stuff. Because um, then it was an ideal way to ship your cargo, the people, um, because slave traders didn't make any money if everyone passed and everyone died. So there was an ideal way that was supposed to be the best way to ship the cargo over to the new world. So then they would come here and be sold um, at slave auctions in a variety of different ways. Um, all around, everywhere, New York to um, Georgia and everywhere in between. So again, I want to stress for your for your listeners to remember that, again, it was not just the Southern United States institution, and it impacted all of, worldwide it impacted, but it impacted all of what would become the United States. You know, I was going to ask you that, so I'm glad that you pointed out that slavery was not confined to the borders of the South, because in my ignorance, I, as an African-American, assumed that it was only in the South and that, you know, that it was not, in fact, in other parts of North and South America. So thank you for sharing that. Well, and I'll also tell you, it was in Indiana. Now, Indiana um, was not supposed to have slavery. The Northwest Ordinance, which created us as a territory, said no slavery northwest of the Ohio River, but we have lots of incidences that we can find in Vincennes and along the river and, um, you know, along the Ohio River of individuals being held as slaves. And then when we became a state in 1816, our state constitution, it says no slavery. But we've got a woman who sued for her freedom in 1820. We became a state in 1816. And in 1820, she had to sue for her freedom because she was being held as a slave. So Hoosiers need to remember that it was also here in a variety of ways. And it may have been illegally held, holding people here, but we were still holding people as enslaved individuals in Indiana. Let's turn for just a second. So take a moment and, and describe what is the Underground Railroad? Because a lot of people, they've heard the term, but they may not know exactly what is the Underground Railroad. So first off, it is not hidey holes and tunnels. It is people helping people. It is offering somebody a place to stay for the night. Um, Someone knocks on your door and um, they just need a place to stay, whether it's in your house, in your barn, in your crops, and you guarantee that they're not going to find, no one's going to find them. Maybe it's um, food, clothing, um, medical care, whatever they need. And then directions onto the next house where you know they're going to be able to find um, that same help. Um, Maybe it's a ride. Maybe, you know, I, I get to my house, I give you, you know, dinner, and then we put you in a wagon, and I take you to the next house. Uh, it's that kind of help. Um, it is, you know, guarding people from um, bounty hunters who are chasing them from the plantation into Indiana, all doing that legally while the work of the Underground Railroad is an illegal activity. And it's just people helping people in a variety of different ways, but not the tunnels and hidey holes and people hiding behind false walls and things like that. We have none of those documented in Indiana, but we have a lot of that help um, that we can document. Again, full transparency, when you think about the Underground Railroad, I think for many, their mind immediately goes to the life and legacy of Harriet Tubman and her many Mm -hmm. return trips to help other slaves escape from bondage. Many people knew that slavery was wrong, but did little to help enslaved people. And so the bravery of those that were, quote unquote, conductors 
as a part of this massive network of the Underground Railroad cannot be forgotten, as you just shared. And so in preparing for our conversation today, that I must say once again that I was ignorant to the fact that so many Hoosiers, including right here in northwest Indiana, were a part of this network. So let's park right here and talk about that for a moment, because I was really and truly amazed when I began to dig into this. Well, because you have to remember, okay, first off, there are people in Indiana who think slavery is fine or that it's none of our business. And so they would turn you in. So as if you are a fugitive slave and you are running from Kentucky, you can't just hang out in Indiana. Um, There's some that did and, and tried and we have incidences of them being captured. So you got to get out of um, Indiana. Michigan was um, an ideal place for a while, um, just north of South Bend is Cassopolis. And it was a free black settlement and became um, a fugitive settlement also. So if you think about all the people going north or from um, over into Illinois coming um, east to get into Michigan or eventually Canada where you couldn't be extradited. They wouldn't allow for the capture of fugitive slaves um, there. And so of all these people, um, we think about in general, if you're walking, you can get about 15 miles a day at this time with going over rugged terrain and all this kind of stuff, not knowing where you're going, things like that. Right. So think about about every 15 miles, you got to find a place to sleep for the night, um, some place, someplace to get food. Now, I'm not saying every 15 miles there's a stop, but if you start thinking of it in those types of geographic areas, you're going to have Northwest Indiana um, individuals um, helping out. You're going to have people using Lake Michigan as a, as a vehicle to move across over to Michigan. You're going to have people coming up through Indianapolis and um, Westfield and places like that, all trying to find freedom. At the same time, though, you're also going to have people in all of those communities who are turning individuals in. There were um, bounties on these individuals' heads with a lot of money, $30,000, $40,000 in today's terms. And so you're living in Northwest Indiana and you don't know this person and you've probably got some racial opinions of them. They're breaking state and federal law. So you turn them in for the um, for that bounty. And so you got to remember that there's both sides playing here um, and that you know, the, the, the fugitive didn't know who was going to help them, who was going to turn them in, what's going to happen. Um, and so they're trusting individuals with their lives. Yeah, and just as you were painting the picture of the route, traveling through rough terrain when you don't know, you have really and truly no sense of direction, you really and truly don't know who you can and cannot trust, and I cannot imagine going through that. I know that we are many, many years removed from that, but as you were speaking of that, you know, my heart almost breaks at the thought of being under such a stressful and tough time. You're you're literally running for your life, and you don't know who you can trust. I mean, how scary was that? Oh, exactly. And so early on, um, it's young men, 18 to 25, who are the fugitives. We can see that through the, the reward ad. But imagine being a mom with four kids, five kids, and you're running. Because of the help, so early on, you know, we didn't have as much Underground Railroad, um, that cohesive network of of help. But by the 1850s, you're starting to get more people helping, more places. And so you start getting, you know, women with their five children. Um, we got a woman, uh, an incident down in Decatur County of that, um, you know, people getting caught. We've got 11 and 12-year-old girls by themselves being caught. And it's because of the help of strangers who, you know, they took their lives and and gave them to these individuals and said, please help me. So it really, it's it's amazing. And I couldn't fathom doing this, you know, even with the the knowledge I have today of how to get from the Ohio River to to Michigan. Imagine if you didn't have a map. The most you've got is 
the North Star would stretch you north, but right. not in the exact direction you need to go. And someone tells you, follow the stream till you get to the White House. And you hope you picked the right house. You hope you picked the right stream. You didn't stray. All these kinds of things. It had to be um, just, it had to be like the worst thing ever because you knew when you, if you got caught, you were going back, right. you were going to be beaten. Um, probably if you're a woman, other things are going to happen to you because the slave owners needed to make sure that the punishment was harsh. So it discouraged others from running. So imagine it's not only that you're going to go back to slavery, but you are going to be punished for your um, the audacity of, of taking your life into your own hands. Yeah, that is, um, I shudder to even think. Now, another thing that I discovered and that you are always keen to point out is the distinct difference between the actors as part of the anti-slavery movement. You point out the difference between an abolitionist and someone who is actually working and participating in an actual underground railroad. And I must admit once again that I always use the the two terms synonymously. I always assume that they were one and the same, but that's not true, correct? Oh yeah, correct. But it, you have to think it's like a continuum of belief systems. There are people who thought slavery was a moral issue, but if you did something about it, then you were breaking the law, and that was a moral issue. So they wouldn't have participated. You have people who maybe would go to um, a meeting and listen, write letters to the editor, write letters to the Congress, but would never fathom breaking state and federal law. And then, but then you also have individuals who have what we call colonizationists who many of them believed slavery was wrong, but they didn't want blacks living in the United States. And we had we had several chapters here in Indiana. And so they didn't want them living in Indiana. And so they were against slavery, but that does not make you pro-black also. And so you've got a group of people who are trying to send all Africans are all African-Americans back to Africa. And then you've got, you know, or you've got underground railroad agents who I find in all of these other organizations, I find underground railroad agents who were also very, very colonization minded. So against slavery, willing to break the law to end slavery, but they certainly don't want someone living next door to them kind of an attitude. And so you have all of these characters, just like any organization, any movement today, um, not everybody thinks the same. And so that was what we had. And so it's really important when we read something from like the 1880s and it says, you know, they were like an obituary that says, oh, he's an ardent abolitionist. Well, him, that would have been great. He worked to the legal end of slavery, but may not have been pro-Black, may not have been pro-Underground Railroad. And so as historians, it's really difficult for us to remember this and piece it all together, but it's important to better understand the story. So, Jeannie, you're here with us today to talk about the Underground Railroad as its path made its way through Indiana. But if we can take a moment to unpack another historical fact about the Hoosier State as it relates to blacks, and that is the 1851 New State Constitution and what it said about new residents, particularly residents of African-American descent. Yeah, so this is not a new thing for Indiana. Um, in, in 1831, we passed a law that any new black settling in, or any black settling in the state didn't have to be new, but anybody living in the state was black had to pay a bond, a $500 bond that said they would not be a nuisance. Um, no whites had to pay this bond. And if a black person left the state, they didn't get the money back. So we've been trying to discourage African-Americans from living in the state for quite a long time. And then in 1851, um, we had to write a new constitution for a variety of reasons. Um, but one of the main sticking points and one of the main um, debates that they had was about allowing new blacks to settle in Indiana. And so the 1851 constitution didn't allow for it. 
um, made it illegal to make contracts with individuals as a way to discourage um, this kind of activity and encouraging you know blacks to come to live in the state. But also the, the fee that if you if you encourage the black to live in the state by making a contract with them, you were fine, and that fine money went to the colonizationist. Um, society, uh, we had our own colonization board that was created um, as a part of this 1851 constitution. So all of these, you know, kind of, while we still got slavery happening and people trying to deal with Underground Railroad, um, Indiana was, and Indiana were not the only state to be doing this. There were several states, um, lots of states that were putting into constitutions and into the laws, um, discouraging or making right out illegal for African-Americans to settle in their state. You've shared throughout our conversation that being a part of the Underground Railroad was extremely dangerous and could cause catastrophic damage to a member's financial well-being and could even lead, in some cases, to death. There were countless Hoosiers that put their life on the line to help save those traveling along the Underground Railroad. So why do you think they did it? You know, that's a great question of why would you, you know, be willing to, to, to break the law, put your family at risk, all these kinds of things. For some people, it was truly a moral issue that, you know, that, that what they were brought up with religion-wise, that it was, you know, a wrong thing. Others, um, maybe not through their religion, but just through their own looking at society, this is wrong. If, if the Constitution says these things, that all men are created equal. Some people, it was a, it was a, a transition. It was a journey for them. Um, we've got a couple of people um, that were originally colonizationists. They didn't want Blacks living here and, and um, moved themselves and learned. They, they studied things. They, they met African-Americans and said, no, this is not what I'm seeing. You know, the, 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 their stereotypes is not true. And they grew as individuals and then started helping and started to get involved in politics to end um, slavery, things like that. So we do have um, a lot of white Hoosiers who, who grew um, and stuff and l- realized that what they thought before was wrong. And, you know, changed what they were doing and actually started then um, working on the Underground Railroad. And a lot of the Underground Railroad was family. Um, you get one guy doing it and then his sons start doing it. And then the sons marry um, into a family that's very similar to them and his daughter-in-law and her parents. And so you have a lot of connection that way um, because you have to build to trust these people to not turn you in. Um, so you get a lot of that kind of thing where it's a, a familial or very close friends. Um, who are participating together. Yeah, right. You know, I spoke earlier about escaped slaves not knowing who to trust, but I did not think about it until you just shared now. Also, those that were helping them, that were participating on with the Underground Railroad, they really and truly did not know who to trust. Exactly. So, yeah, that is frightening, and I just I cannot get over the, that time. For me, it's an interesting thing. Is, you know, we're, we're, it's some of our worst part of our history of, the enslavement of people, but it's also some of our best part of history of people, again, helping, growing, um, you know, African-Americans who are taking their um, own agency and doing, so it is, it is for historians, you know, I like that cotton. I like things um, that are not straight and clear because it just shows how complex we are. But this part of history, again, we need to study it because we need to understand what we were thinking and why so we don't continue to think that way. But we also need to study it so we understand how people can grow and change and help out other individuals um, that need help. So, Jeannie, finally, let's talk about your writing, The Escape of Peter, which actually that's what brought me to you. I found the story to be quite fascinating. 
Now, I should share for our listening audience that the work was originally published in the Black History News and Notes in May 2005, but it is also available on the Indiana Historical Society's website as well. There are so many interesting facts about the story for which inspired a deeper dive into federal court cases involving the escape of a slave from Wayne County. Please take a moment to walk us through the story of Peter. So Peter is um, living in Kentucky and he's enslaved and he chooses to take his own agency and leave the plantation. But we don't know what happened to him. He, he left about 1821. We don't know what happened to him between 21 and 24 when he is found. He is found in Richmond, Indiana, which is on the east, east side of eastern part of this state. Um, he's living just north of, of Richmond. He's changed his name. And um, he's just living his life. He's a farmer, kind of, you know, trying to be a Hoosier. He, um, the bounty hunters, who I'm fascinated with the bounty hunters. They know so many things. I don't know how they knew to go to Wayne County at this time. And they, they, they would stake out places and they were sticking out the store that Peter usually used. So Peter, also known as George um, Stello, is arrested. Now, according to state law, you can take them back, we'll extradite them back to Kentucky, but there's a process. And so the process is they have to take um, Peter to the, the county jail and the, um, and the township trustee is a part of this process. And they have to go get the owner because it's the owner who has to identify them. And so, the, so they put Peter in custody, go back to Kentucky to get the owner. And during this time while he is incarcerated, and the, the court case says this, a violent mob of Quakers, which I love because we think Quakers are all passive, right. but apparently these guys were not. And it's not a mob. It's two guys. It's a, uh, a gentleman and, his again, his son-in-law. They go in, they beat up the jailer, and they break Peter out of jail. Wow. After that, we don't know what happened to Peter. We hope he found freedom. I just hope he got found. He went someplace else, found some freedom. So what's left for this owner of Peter to do? Well, federal law allowed them to, um, it was a 1793 law that George Washington signed. He allowed them to sue the two Quakers. And he did. He, he sued them for loss of property, no different than if they had stolen his horse. And he uh, won. Um, each had to pay $1,500. So in 1825, he got $3,000 for the inconvenience of the loss of his property. And so we've got, you know, again, this is like a, the epitome of a lot of Who's your history, right? All in one. Right. Um, right. And shows how much more history we've got to uncover. Wow. As I said at the beginning, my question, that story is quite fascinating. I don't think that I've ever heard of a story of a slave owner being able to sue to recover financial damages for the loss of their property. So, yeah, it actually happens more than you think, because in the court records, it's going to be in the county court records, sometimes in the federal court cases. And so how many people go and read federal court cases? Right. I mean, I did from the 1820s, but that's what I do for a living, you know. Um, and so, and it's for loss of property. So if you're not paying attention to how it's indexed, because it's indexed as loss of property or it's a property issue, you wouldn't think to look for slaves. So that was something that kind of turned how I was looking at the indexes. And so we actually find uh, several people being, um, there was one up in northern Indiana. They, uh, it was in the 1850s, late 1840s. They um, arrested a family out of Cassopolis, and as they brought them south into South Bend, um, a, a mob helped the family escape. There was a lot of things going on, and the slave owner uh, arrest, or, uh, sued many people, like half of South Bend for loss of property. 
So it is something that happens, but it's not something we think of because of the property issue. Jeannie, during your tenure with the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, you were a highly sought after public speaker and you traveled the state extensively detailing Indiana's history regarding slavery and the Underground Railroad. And I can't state again that your years of investigative research have proved once again today to be enlightening. And I just simply cannot thank you enough for spending time with us today on Regionally Speaking. Well, thank you for highlighting this history. It's important. And if people want to learn more, go on the DNR's website. There's more information. There's more stories. And there are historians all around your region doing more research about what's going on in Indiana. Jeannie Reagan-Denius is the Director of Historic Preservation with the Crown Hill Heritage Foundation. Jeannie is also the former Director of Special Initiatives with the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. You're listening to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Media. Over the past 12 years, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Tips from Former Smokers campaign has helped millions of U.S. adults to quit smoking. Year after year, the TIPS campaign has proven its effectiveness while promoting compelling messages and offering free resources to help adults quit smoking. This year, the TIPS campaign features new people sharing their stories about how cigarette smoking and smoking-related diseases have negatively impacted their lives. Many of the new TIPS ads include messaging about the harms of menthol cigarettes, which can contribute to tobacco-related health disparities. Joining us now to share more information about the TIPS campaign is Diane Bystill, Chief of the Health Communications Branch with the CDC's Office on Smoking and Health. Diane, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you so much for um, having me on your show today. Diane, I want to ask you, what is the overall goal of the TIPS campaign, and what makes this year's campaign so different? Yeah, so the TIPS campaign launched in 2012, and it features real people telling their stories about how smoking impacted them and the lives of their loved ones. Since 2012, we've now featured um, 48 people who, from all walks of life, who have bravely um, shared their stories, inspiring millions of people to quit. This year, we are um, including um, messaging in the campaign and ads about the harms of smoking menthol cigarettes. Menthol is added to cigarettes, and what it does is it makes, there's a, there's a numbing and a cooling cessation sensation, and it makes smoking easier to start and harder to quit. So many people who smoke associate that numbing and cooling sensation with a feeling of it being, you know, less harmful than regular cigarettes. So in this year's ads, we have messages about the fact that smoking menthol cigarettes are just as harmful as regular cigarettes. So let me ask you, why are menthol cigarettes a concern? Well, as I said, you know, menthol cigarettes now account for about 35% of all cigarettes sold in the United States. And, you know, for many people, they do associate that um, cooling cessation with uh, the feeling that menthol cigarettes are healthier for them, when in fact, they're just as harmful as regular cigarettes. So the Ads in this year's Tips from Former Smokers campaign help share stories about people um, who have smoked menthol cigarettes 
and they let people know that, you know, quitting is possible and free help is available through 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Diane, how has the campaign changed the lives of people who do, in fact, smoke? Over the years, millions of people have been inspired to quit as a result of seeing the quit as a result of seeing the tips ads and 1 million have successfully quit for good because of the tips for former smokers ads and that's really because you know the people featured in the campaign you know bravely share their stories of what happened to them and it's so motivating to other people to see people who are like them share their stories about you know how they've struggled but how they've ultimately been successful in quitting. So you mentioned earlier that this year's campaign features real people telling their stories, inspiring millions of people to quit, right? So I'm kind of curious, the real people that have shared their stories, what kind of tips, if any, kind of stand out that they have spoken about that have inspired so many to quit? Well, one of the important things that the campaign does is it promotes free resources to help people quit, including the 1-800-QUIT-NOW number. And when people call 1-800-QUIT-NOW, they speak to a counselor who can get them set up with a quitting plan. And one of the most important things about setting up a quitting plan is identifying a quit date. They also talk to you about other strategies to help you be successful, like throwing away your ashtrays and lighters by establishing a support system like your friends and family that you can turn to if you are feeling like you might you know, want a cigarette, you can call somebody and they'll help talk you through it. It'll say, it'll give you tips like, you know, practice some deep breathing exercises or go for a walk if you feel like smoking. A lot of times that craving that you're feeling, that urge for nicotine will disappear if you can delay it for, you know, 15 minutes or so. And deep breathing and exercise is a great way to to do that. I think another tip to help you be successful is to talk with your doctor about quitting. Even if you talked with them previously, they can help you set a quit date and prescribe you with quit smoking medicines if they think that would be helpful. There are currently seven FDA-approved quit smoking medicines available, and we found that when you combine counseling like you would get from the 1-800-QUIT-NOW number with quit smoking medicines, you can double or triple your chances of successfully quitting. Diane, in our short time together today, you have shared a lot of information about how the TIPS campaign has helped people who smoke quit, as well as why menthol cigarettes are a concern. Now, for our listening audience that would like more information, where can they go? If your audience wants to learn more about the new people featured in the campaign, they can go to cdc.gov slash tips. On that website, you'll find the stories of the people featured in the campaign, not just the the new people featured this year, but all of the people featured in all of the years of the campaign. And you'll also have access to a number of quitting resources. I've talked about 1-800-QUIT-NOW, but there's also information in there about the national texting portal. If you prefer to try quitting through a texting program, that might be for you. There's also information about a Quit Start app that was developed by the National Cancer Institute for people who prefer to use uh, Try Quitting by the use of an app, that's another great option. Diane Bystill is the Chief of the Health Communications Branch with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Office on Smoking and Health. Diane, again, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you so much for having me today. You're listening to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Media.
Indiana Humanities invites Hoosiers across the state to dig into local food and engage in conversations as part of Food for Thought 2024, presented by Indiana's family of farmers. On February 21st, from 6 to 8 p.m., simultaneous dinner discussions called Chew on This, What's on Your Plate, will take place at eight restaurants in cities across the state, accompanied by insightful conversations with other curious Indiana residents. The events are a continuation of an award-winning Indiana Humanities Initiative from 2011 called Food for Thought. Food for Thought examined the ways that food helps define Indiana's culture and considered food in the context of history, law, politics, science, the arts, religion, ethnicity, and our place in the world. The event series is part of Indiana Humanities' multi-year thematic initiative, Unearth, which encourages Hoosiers to discover and discuss the relationships with the natural world and explore how we shape the environment and how the environment shapes us. Joining us now to talk more about the event is Indiana Humanities Communications Manager, Anna Bowman. Anna, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you for having me. Anna, so as I shared in my opening, coming up on next Wednesday, February the 21st, Indiana Humanities will host a series of simultaneous discussions that will happen at eight restaurants across the state, including right here in Northwest Indiana at Zoan Brew Works in Michigan City. Before we talk about the event itself, what is Chew on This? What is the genesis of this now annual event? Yeah, Chew on This um, is kind of uh, a conversation series that we came up with um, about over 10 years ago. And it's where food come, it's where food kind of plays into um, conversation. So it's everyone getting together at a table. You may or may not know the people at the table because it's open to the public and you buy tickets. And there will be a discussion that's facilitated with um, an expert or someone from the community. And essentially, it's just gonna—it's a big dinner conversation. It's a big dinner party where people can talk about a given theme. Um, we change that about every year. And this year, we're talking about what's on your plate and where food comes from and how we make decisions about the food we consume and the way we consume it. So it's a lot of topics like that that will be discussed this year. And what does Indiana Humanities hope to accomplish with the Chew on This discussion series? That's a great question. And I think um, it it comes back to what we're all about as an organization, which is to spark big conversations and connect Hoosiers and establish relationships with people. So um, what we really want to do with this event series is um, introduce people that might not know each other, um, form new relationships with people, and dig into the big topics. So, Anna, paint a picture, if you will, for this event. How will the discussions go? I mean, is there a facilitator? Are there leading questions? Is it a more of a guided conversation or is the conversation more organic? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a combination of both. We will have a facilitator at each table that will guide the discussion and make sure we hit um, the big questions that we kind of have planned out in advance. But we do want to leave room for the guests 
to be able to bring up their own questions and to have a really organic conversation come out of this. Food for Thought examines the ways that food helps define Indiana's culture and considers food in the context of history, law, politics, science, the arts, religion, ethnicity, and our place in the world. And what I admire most about Chew on This is the diversity of the attendees at the event because it would appear that the gathering of individuals from different backgrounds makes for a more interesting conversation and at the same time opens our eyes to a new, different perspective of the world, correct? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is definitely something that can happen with these conversations. Anna, this sounds like a wonderful opportunity for community members to come together, engage in conversation and share their own perspective. You know, when I think about the Hoosier State, but particularly the region with the diversity of groups, be it ethnicity, race, religious or political views, just to name a, you can't help but imagine the types of conversations that will be sparked at this dinner. To have the opportunity to sit across the table from someone whose path you may not otherwise cross, and ultimately, at the end of the conversation, probably reach a new understanding about a particular topic. That's worth the price of the ticket. So before I let you go, Anna, Chew on This will be hosted Wednesday, February the 21st. And right here in the region, it will be hosted at Zorn Brew Works in Michigan City. For those that may be interested in attending this event, how can they get more information on registration and tickets? Yeah, well, we actually just have a link for that. Um, If you go to cotyourplate.eventbrite.com. You'll be able to see all the tickets we have available at the eight participating locations. And Anna, I understand there is a gallery of photos from previous dinners available for our listening audience to view as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. If you'd like to see pictures of previous events, we have all of those up on our website. And um, yeah, you'll get to see kind of, you know, the turnout for them. Um, we don't have a lot of food pictures, but you know, that's something we could aim for this year. Anna Bowman is the communications manager with Indiana Humanities. Thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking, sharing all of the information with our listening audience. Thank you so much. When you think about Valentine's Day, you often think about chocolate and sweet treats. But this year, Valentine's Day fell on Ash Wednesday. And so there may not be a lot of people who opted to give up their candy and chocolate heart, but instead are opting for a non-sweet fast, like cutting out the bad money habits that might be preventing them from reaching their financial goal. Northwest Indiana Financial Advisor Greg Hammer joins us now to discuss four money habits that people make that are costing them hundreds or even hundreds of thousands of dollars over their lifetime as well as the smart money habits we should all implement instead. Thank you for joining us on Originally Speaking. Thanks for having me, Andy. Greg, so I took a sneak peek at the money habits, and I'm going to be honest, they don't sound like the same old rhetoric of making your coffee at home rather than purchasing that expensive cup of coffee while you're out. But they sound like impactful habits that can really improve someone's financial house. So I want to start with this habit not taking financial literacy seriously. Explain why we should all start here. Yeah, D, uh, most Americans obviously can 
can read and write, but if you've ever been put in a position where you had to write an, an article, for example, for a magazine, you quickly learn that writing at that level is a lot more challenging than the typical emails or correspondence that we spend most of our time doing in day-to-day life. And, and that's really what personal finance is like. Too many people assume that you know knowing basic math skills or balancing a checkbook is financial literacy, but financial literacy goes way beyond those simple skills. In reality, understanding how every financial decision we make is based on our knowledge of financial literacy and having a high level of literacy makes us allows us to make better decisions when doing things that come up in life, like purchasing a home, investing, saving for retirement, all those little decisions, how they go hand in hand and how they're connected create a lot better result with financial literacy. So, Greg, what can our listeners do right now to improve their financial literacy knowledge? Well, I believe that most people are going to learn financial literacy skills. Unfortunately, what we've seen is too often people gain that knowledge when they're going through a challenging time in their life, you know, like a forced retirement, um, medical illness, loss of a spouse. So it's best to learn those things before you're forced to learn them, before you're in a crisis. And every person is at a different starting point on their financial journey. And and only you know what financial decisions you need to make right now in your life, whether it's paying off debt, saving for retirement, developing an estate plan. But reading books, listening to podcasts, taking classes, um, talking to professionals, these are all ways to help improve your financial literacy skills. And the key, though, is to take action and start doing some of those things. Greg, let's talk about habit number two, not saving for retirement earlier. Now, we hear this often on the news. We read it in magazines. And financial gurus like Susan Orman are always discussing this topic. It's one thing to say that someone will have more money for retirement the earlier they start to invest. But it's another thing when we hear the amount of money that people could potentially have in their account if they started to invest earlier. Can you share some investment numbers of someone who started to invest early in their career? Sure, Dee. And uh, most people that are pre-retirees, you know, within five to 10 years of retirement, always wish they had started saving for retirement earlier than they did. But let's say you wanted to retire at age 65. You know, if you started investing let's just say $50 a month at a 7% rate of return at age 40, by the time you reach 65, you'd have just over $40,000. If you started 20 years earlier at age 20, that same $50 a month, you would have over $190,000 at age 65. And that's a difference of over 150000 or over 300% more in terms of what you would have for retirement. Wow, that is awesome. Now, let me ask you, Greg, what if someone invested $100? Well, and like you would assume, it's pretty much double, right? If you invested that $100 at 7% at age 40, then by the time you reach age 65, you'd have just over 81000 Back it up 20 years earlier, if you started at age 20, that same $100, you'd have over $380,000. And that's a difference of over 300000 So you can see how impactful that could be. It really does make a huge impact when you start investing earlier. Greg, what can our listeners do to start investing for retirement? The biggest thing is just getting into the habit of investing. 
and and I think the biggest challenge most people look at, well, I can't save enough. It doesn't matter um, that you you feel like it's over, you know, it's overwhelming. Just start saving what you can, and as you start signing up for things like your four hundred one k, you get matching dollars, hopefully, or your tax favored retirement accounts. And as you get raises, just keep adding to it. Make it a habit to invest more, and you build those uh, amounts up over time where they don't feel like they're overwhelming. And and since you mentioned Susie Orman, you know, she was in the news recently discussing the benefits of parents investing in a Roth IRA for their children, but the, the potential of earning $1 million for those kids if parents started investing early enough and under the right interest rates is a perfect example of the benefits of investing early. Greg, you just gave a great tip about when you receive a raise to invest more. So that was an awesome tip. Now, but let me ask you, what about those who didn't start investing early? Well, for anybody over 50, they now have uh, pretty substantial what they call catch-up contributions. So there's things that you can add in addition to the normal contribution amounts. So if uh, you're 50 and over with a 401k, you actually are allowed to contribute an additional $7,500 above the standard amount. If it's the traditional IRA or Roth IRAs, it's an additional 1000 as what they classify as catch-up contributions. Habit number three, not paying attention to current events and pivoting financial strategies to seize timely opportunities. Can you give us some examples of this? Yeah, let's just start recently. Like in 2023, last year, you know, the market was down for a good part of the year. It was flat for a bit, and then it bounced up at the end of the year. So when the market makes these moves, it's prime time to look at potential opportunities to rebalance your portfolio or make additional contributions. So if you're retired, the other thing to look at is how you withdraw those assets in that same type of market volatility. And it's important because you want to be strategic where you withdraw funds from. You don't want to withdraw from funds that are down and then they don't have the opportunity to recover. So you want to withdraw from those parts of your portfolio that weren't impacted as much. Also, in 2023, we saw for the first time in over a decade, opportunities to lock in high interest rates. And it could be even with CDs and money markets, but those interest rates are rates that we haven't seen in a very, very long time that can give you a little bit of security in what you're doing. And of course, the thing that we always advocate about, Dean, you know, we've talked about this before, um, with 2024 being a presidential year and many opportunities for the investors, you typically see things happen in presidential election years that create opportunities. And the second part of that is, you know, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is expiring next year. So what are the things we should be doing today, this year, and next year to take advantage of the current tax code before it actually expires and we go back to the old tax code? Now, Greg, there's one more habit that I want to talk to you about, and it's habit number four, not paying attention to taxes all year long, but only at tax time. Walk me through that. Yeah, because tax preparation and tax planning are two very different things. I always tell people that your tax preparer is kind of the historian. They're always looking backwards, and they're just aggregating everything that occurred in the previous year and balancing the books. Where planning is looking forward. You know, what opportunities exist that can improve my outcome? And even though the financial landscape has been constantly changing, the one thing that I think everybody understands is you're going to eventually pay taxes. And since taxes are one of the biggest threats to your nest egg, you want to stay at top of these changing laws. How so, Greg? Well, many people look at their IRA statement 
and they have a balance. Let's say you have a million dollars in your IRA. They assume that they have a million dollars to use in their retirement. But depending on the type of taxes that you could be exposed to, and there's different types of taxes, as much as 50% of that million dollars could potentially be lost from taxes. So if you had a million dollars and you wanted to retire at age 65 and we're planning on use it for, let's say, 30 years, well, the math says we have roughly $33,000 per year. However, if it was in a pre-tax IRA, traditional IRA, or something that is still hasn't been taxed, um, that tax impact could reduce that million to, let's say, 700000 which reduces you know your allocation per year to $23,000. That's a you know, third of what you were getting. So it's a, over a 30% reduction in, in terms of what you'd have as spendable money. And depending on other impacts it could have on Medicare, Social Security, making them taxable, um, the additional tax impact could reduce that million to only a half a million dollars that you're being able to use. And now you're talking roughly sixteen, seventeen thousand per year. So understanding, you know, what is yours and how you strategically can do some tax planning to, to keep most of your dollars um, will definitely impact your retirement outlook. Greg, you know what? That was a, a wonderful example, and it really painted the picture um, for our listening audience in a way that we wouldn't otherwise understand. Now, before I let you go, what can our listeners do to decrease their tax liability? Well, to me, the biggest thing is take advantage of the tax laws that can really impact one's bo- bo- the bottom line, right? Especially for individuals saving for retirement. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is sunsetting in 2025. And translation, we go back to the old tax code and we don't know what future tax will look like, you know, what the rates will be. They're, you know, they might not just be higher, but we do expect that tax brackets could change. And what I mean by that is, you know, the old code, you know, the brackets were graduated to 25% through 100,000. Now you don't even hit 25% through 400,000. So if you're going to pay taxes, you know, what is our current rate to what we anticipate it to be in the future? And if you're getting this experience uh, with financial literacy, working in the financial sector, most people are expecting tax rates to increase. So if you believe that is the case, Roth conversions could potentially save you hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes and retirement savers can not only, you know, lock in a lower tax rate, with a Roth conversion, um, but they can create more value of those dollars for unexpected distributions where they don't impact things like your Social Security. But they are running out of time because it ends next year. We The, the sunset happens at the end of 2025. And if we want to do a phased Roth conversion, you know, do some this year, do some next year, you really want to begin to address it now. And remember, D, it's not how you earn, but how much you get to keep that makes a difference in what your nest egg will do for you. And that is an excellent way for us to end our conversation for today. Greg, you know, I always enjoy having you because you share so much information for our listeners on how we can all prepare for retirement, no matter what your age is. And so I thank you once again for joining us on Regionally Speaking, and I look forward to having you back with us next month. Thanks, Dee. I always enjoy being on on the radio with you. And that's it for Regionally Speaking for this week. Thanks to our guests, and we'll be back with you next week with an all-new show.